TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. And welcome to Overnight America. Watching now some of the different votes that are taking place when it comes to the House Rules Committee on agreeing to the resolutions and the resolutions and the urging of the resolutions and the resolution of the resolutions resolution. And then all of the different members of the House get an opportunity to sound off. And it's, I mean, right down party lines. So all the Democrats say, yes, we want to urge Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. And all the Republicans say, no, not necessary, particularly because Pence has already came out and said that, uh, no, we're not doing the 25th Amendment to remove Trump. And he has urged Congress to focus on the transition and also to avoid uh, avoid impeachment. And what's going to be happening tomorrow is that vote. Will they vote to move impeachment forward? And there are some Republicans that are going to cross over and vote that way. It's going to be another one that I think is. And as you heard at the news update here with CBS, most likely happen even after Trump is out of office, if it happens at all. And by all likelihood, it could turn that way. I guess we'll have to find out tomorrow. But either way, you heard from Senator Roy Blunt, and I think he sums it up the way that I look at this, which is this is just a political move. Now, think of all the other things that are going on. And now if we're talking about incitement or angering people or whatever it may be and trying to push this further than it needs to go, this is really par for the course of what we've seen in the way that they try to get the base riled up against Donald Trump. And in this case, I think that for the past couple of years, this is what I would say. There's a lot of people that have been reported to say that, yes, we would want to see impeachment, including Today, there is a report, multiple sources said Mitch McConnell supports the initiative to go further into the impeachment proceedings. Mitch McConnell, even. Wow. That one surprised me a little bit. We're, we're talking about the, the leader in this sense of the Senate, the Republican Party, who's about to lose that because the Senate no longer will be edged towards the Republicans soon. It'll be a Chuck Schumer leadership in what's going on there. And this is what we're seeing right now. I think that some of the more established, older Republicans are looking at this as the opportunity to rid Donald Trump of the party once and for all. So they see this as the opportunity to get in the 
the shots while they can because get it while the getting is good. There's a lot of that going on. House Democrats putting out a 76-page report in support of impeachment. That is out there, too. And I'm still watching the different vote that's coming in. There's only a couple of votes that have not yet made it uh, to the House floor. A lot of the different members are voting remotely. So you do see a lot of action on the House floor right now. But what you don't see is every single member of the House, some of which a representative from the party will go up to the podium and say, so-and-so from this state votes yay or nay from the previous resolution and a lot of procedural things going on as we speak. But we're keeping an eye on it tonight because I really do want to uh, keep you informed on what's going down. But it's just a lot of things happening at once. And the story with Roy Blunt, if you haven't seen that, he gave a great interview with Mark Reardon. You can see that at radio.com. Uh, so as they continue to push, Roy Blunt says, I think the politics have taken over. I can't imagine a bigger overreach than the Biden administration reaching back and impeaching the past president who's no longer in office and can't be removed because he's not there. And I guess that's how they want to use their power. I think also, too, um, what we're looking at is it's a mute point for the 25th Amendment. So they, that's why they're pushing for impeachment. They have the support, which is the unity of hatred towards Donald Trump. So that means they have the votes. Is it really necessary for them to move forward with it? I don't think so. And if anything, when Joe Biden is in office, what you should probably should do is just uh, call off the dogs and let's uh, let's let this one go. And I don't think that I don't think that's what they want to do, but it's probably what they should do. Other leaders are continuing to make different notes, uh, at least put their name on the record. And I think what's the important thing, at least right now, for some of these Republicans that feel like this is the opportunity to get the shots in while they can, is that there are 70 some million people that voted for Donald Trump in this past election. And that needs to be remembered. <laughs> There's a lot of people that look at this and say, uh, bearing what happened last week, and of those 70-some million people that voted for Donald Trump, I'm guessing 70-some million also condone and are very shocked and appalled by the actions of last week, can look at that and say, this isn't really the opportunity to give up on all the things that we believe in, uh, the things that we've been fighting for, the things that we want to see happen in government and for our country, and to just roll over and say, well, we're just going to allow it to go into the hands of Pelosi and Schumer and because of some people that were stupid last week. I don't think so. So this is where I think they have to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more mindful that there are some pretty serious repercussions to go and just turn your back at this moment in time. So I want to do a couple of things this hour. We actually have a guest scheduled, which is pretty neat. Andrea Pitzer is her name. She's the author of Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. Now imagine going up to the Arctic, spending some time up there by ship and then finding yourself stranded. It probably would feel exactly like getting stranded on Mars because it's very difficult to get help <laughs> when you're in that way. But she actually documents and goes back and looks at a couple of different voyages through the Arctic. And this book is pretty interesting. She's going to spend a half hour talking about some of the history and the travels through the Arctic, things that they've discovered, things that they found, scary things, amazing things, all kinds of different things. And also coming up in the next segment, I want to talk about this story over at KMOV, homeless camps being shut down in downtown St. Louis. This happens. It goes through a purge every once in a while. We're seeing one of those happening outside of the dome. So we'll talk about that too. If you want to get a couple of comments in, you can at 314-436-7900. 
or 800-925-1120. We only have a couple of minutes because we're going to join Andrea Pitzer a little after the 830 weather. So you better call in now if you want to. It's Overnight America, KMOX. St. Louis's traffic station, KMOX. Overnight America continues and looking at some of the issues here in St. Louis. We'll talk about that. And really, some of the other problems that we have, and there's a lot of problems. I mean, uh, we haven't really ceased having problems. And it's not like the problem started last week. It's not even like the problem started last year. It's not even like the problem started the past, uh, you know, five years, 10 years. It's been around for a little while now. We've seen a lot of this division, and it's really tough to try to bet on the side to say it's going away anytime soon. You just don't know. I, I also wonder what it would take to make it go away, and I really don't know what the answer is there either. Across the country, across the world even, there's so many different areas, regions, countries, uh, states, anything, th- that are having issues with this very same thing. And the struggle between just about everyone and everything is a struggle that doesn't really have an answer, does it? You know, it's not like we can all grab a Coke and sit down and see a world in harmony like the old commercial. It doesn't quite work like that. Real quick, let's go to Gordon, who's calling in. Welcome to Overnight America. Hey, thank you. I appreciate the, uh, taking the call. Um, I, I think my, my comment was that, you know, we hear the conspiracy theory. Uh, we hear talk about conspiracy theories. Um, and I think my message that I was going to say is that I I'm, I'm really worried about the mail-in ballot. I, I hope that after the, the dust all clears, they zero in on that. They really investigate it. Somebody investigates it, and, and I hope we can get rid of it. Because I tell you, you know, it's, it's not unrealistic for us to think about, you know, warehouses full of people going rummaging through classified documents from America in a country like China. We, don't, we, 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 we can take that and believe that that could happen. And not really bat an eye about that, but to think of uh, warehouses full of organized people uh, stuffing, you know, envelopes with mail-in ballots in this country uh, because somebody wants to oust somebody that they don't like, uh, we, we we dispel that in a moment. We we can't, you know, no, there's no way that could ever happen. But but really, could it not happen? Hmm. Okay. Well, thanks, could it Gordon. Not happen. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the question. I think that the biggest concern for me when I look into it is a few things. When we go from 20 or mil, uh, twenty to 30 million mail-in ballots to 100 million mail-in ballots in between one election cycle, the opportunity is there if we don't adjust the way we handle mail-in ballots. And the problem that you see with some of the states is that the laws they use to adjust it were done in a way that, well, were questionable. And I think that's what some Republicans like Jim Jordan has brought up. And the problem that I think we really need to find, and, and I've never seen this reported yet, and I've been trying to find it reported. So if anyone's seen it, let me know or message me. I, I want to know how many of those 100 million mail-in ballots were invalidated. So when they go through the process, each individual state has to validate and make sure that it is a legal vote, a legal ballot. How many of those 100 million were turned away because it didn't meet the standard of what the state offered? That's the question. I really want to find out that number. If that percentage is close to zero, then I think, if anything, it adds more question. uh, Why is it close to zero? Is it possible 
that every single person that mailed in a ballot is valid or or is it possible that maybe we just did a bad job at validating them? Maybe we didn't do our due diligence in that because here's what I think a lot of states were pushed up against. They were looking at, well, we're going to have to excuse some of the um, you know, blemishes. We're going to have to excuse some of the questionable ones because ultimately it's better to include the ones that should be investigated than to leave them out and disenfranchise people. And I wonder how much of that thinking was multiplied and what that would have meant. And part of that, I think the issue is that it's not going to be solved. I mean, this year, if anything, it should have been addressed years ago. And that's what Donald Trump tried to address. Even after he won the 2016 election, as the winner, he said, we need to look into voter fraud. We need to make sure this is secure. And he was uh, ridiculed and laughed at because he said there's no way any of these problems could ever come up. And for four years, he's been trying to get a fix on that. and Nothing happened. So if anything, if um, I, this is what I would say, uh, just humor us, humor us, make sure we're airtight in our elections in the future. Airtight in the sense that we are now adjusting for the idea that a lot of votes are going to be coming in through a mail in process and they're not going to be representing themselves in person. So make it airtight to make sure every vote has a way to validate it is certain it is certified it is representing an individual. Just do that. And I don't know if they want to do that. Uh, they look at that as too much of a burden to to hop through. You know, it's it's too much, and it, there's too much burden for the state to have to to go through this and hop through the uh, hurdles and all of these things. And same thing for the individual. How can we expect someone to, you know, we should make it as easy as possible to vote. Well, what we should be doing is making it as easy as possible as you represent yourself. And we just don't have that system right now. I mean, even when they try to look at it on, in uh, terms of the like the journalists that decided to do a couple of reports, there's one in Philadelphia and one even in Kansas City, two of the larger Areas that decided to do a mail in ballot test and they sent, you know, 100 here and 100 there and they wanted to see how many of them came back as a simulated election. And both of them had about a 2% that didn't come back. 2%. That's a lot. I mean, all things considered, when you have 100 million, 2% is a big number. Well, how about this? Of those that did actually come in, uh, what was the process that was used? as in for the uh, for the certification process. Here in Missouri, it's a little bit different because I think you needed a notary if you're going to be sending one in, right? So the certification process is at least there is someone that would stand behind it where if they did need to track, they could find it out. But it's not like that everywhere. So what is the procedure in the other states? So these are the questions I think people have brought up. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, based on the violence in Washington, D.C., when those questions are brought up, you're looked at as inciting violence by by bringing this up. And that's that is unfortunate. I, I think that you could question government and also look at the incitement of violence as a terrible thing and reject that. And I think the two can live simultaneously. Um, but you have representatives like here in St. Louis with Cory Bush, who says they can't live simultaneously. If you question government and you're a Republican, you should be kicked out. And that's a problem. That is another problem. So there's all of these things simultaneously happening where 
I, I don't know anyone that is going out and saying, yeah, we need to go out there and cheer what happened at the Capitol building last week. No one's cheering that. No one's happy for that. Everyone's uh, disgusted by that. And they see that as, as a terrible thing. Now, the problem that you're going to find is that they're going to use that and say, well, if you question things and they question things, then obviously you are one and the same. And that's not how it should work. And consistently speaking, it's not how it's worked in the past when it's been on the other side. There's always been issues when it comes to other protests that have turned violent, where uh, police officers and people have been injured, property damage, fires, and all of these terrible disruptions uh, of uh, acts of violence just going through the streets night after night. And what's the reaction to there? You can't say that, oh boy, it's a... You know, you can't say the entire movement is pinned on those that create violence, even though it happens a lot. But then it continues to happen and we know it's going to happen. And every time we have a, a whiff of something, we know that where it's going to lead to in some places. But, hey, you can't judge the greater cause based on the actions of those people. And then they use that and they wave that and they say that, except for instances like this, when they say it is an indication of the greater cause. The violence it can't be separated from it, which, again, another hypocritical moment. A lot of people have been pointing out what we've seen in the country over the past couple of years, in particular last year was a was a real bad year. And look at what St. Louis was a part of last year when there were protests and uh, police action in Minnesota. And there were uh, protests all across the country, including St. Louis. And we had that one night where buildings and cars were set on fire, looting and businesses and police officers and Captain Dorn was shot and killed. During this and other police officers wounded, they were shooting at firefighters and ambulance drivers. You know, everyone was a target there. And we look at those moments in St. Louis and we shake our head and say, this is disgusting and terrible. And still at the same time, what changed after that when it came to the movements on the other side? Nothing, because the movements continued unfettered. And that's a problem. If that's the problem, which is um, the, the, the slogans of we're going to we're going to decide what justice is and we're going to decide how we enforce justice, even if it means using mob violence. That's wrong on both sides and in any type of movement. But it's not looked at it that way in both sides. That's the sad thing. And it's excused in some ways. And how many times was it excused? leading up to where we were last week. Of course, it's no excuse. Of course, it's no justification. All of these things, you know, justification relative to someone's anger doesn't work and it shouldn't work and it shouldn't be used that way. So there's a lot of frustrations. Um, Ultimately speaking, I'm just looking forward to the end of this presidency for the sake that I hope that all of this, this vitriol from the left that we're seeing right now ends. And we can move on. We just want to be done with it. We just want to be done with it. And it's sad because I didn't want it to end this way. I, I didn't want the end of the Trump presidency to be like this. Maybe I was naive to think it would end any other way, but I didn't want it. And I don't think anyone else did. And unfortunately, now the gang pile is going on and it's predictable. And now I wonder what's going to happen after that. And it's just a lot of uncertainty. A lot of other doors closing, not many of them opening at this point. Well, uh, when we come back, I hope you enjoyed that rant. It wasn't what I was expecting to talk about, but I just had a lot of these feelings going through and 
Why not just do another monologue based on a phone call? When we come back, Andrea Pitzer is going to join us. She's the author of Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. And when Andrea joins us, a lot of history there traveling through the Arctic. It's not an easy, safe travel. So the what has been documented of it, it's pretty amazing, the things that they have seen and found and the obstacles they had to overcome. So Andrea Pitzer joins us next on Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love. Hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. News Radio 1120 KMOX. The voice of the Cardinals. Here we are in Overnight America. There's a new book called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of of the world it's coming out just uh next week i think it's a matter of a couple of weeks it's really soon it is a week from thursday and joining us is the author journalist andrea pitzer thank you so much for coming on to kmox thanks for having me on this is an interesting thought because in mass media or in television or movies a lot of times you think of some of the different common storylines where someone gets trapped in the middle of the desert and you look at the hot sun coming down and will they ever be found in the, in the middle of nowhere? I would say they need to do more about the Arctic because the way that this is described getting stuck up in the Arctic sounds like 10 times worse. Well, first of all, the book is out today. So that's the oh. first exciting thing to get out there. Um, and yes. second of all, I totally agree with you because uh, this high Arctic area that these guys were stranded in, uh, two or three hundred miles above the Russian mainland, uh, above Siberia, is uh, Arctic desert. So it's basically like desert plus super cold with ice and, so, and polar bears. So you have all sort of the agonies of like no food. Uh, you do have water up there, but no food, nothing to eat, no way not to get scurvy and polar bears attacking you and your ship is frozen in, in the ice. And so, yeah, I think that there's um, a lot more kind of harrowing and terrifying elements that you can bring in in the Arctic. So I'm, a, I'm in favor of more Arctic stories. <laughs> and not just polar bears, hungry polar bears. Hungry They're polar bears. Iron. They're getting lean, yeah. And, and, and these guys had not seen before the first of the three expeditions that they went on, they had not seen polar bears. So the first time they saw one in their first expedition in 1594, they had this idea that they knew of bears that had sometimes been trained to be uh, taken into Amsterdam and sort of performing on the street. So they thought they would bring back this white bear that they saw and <laughs> with them and get it into the little boat that they were in and take it back to Amsterdam with them. They learned pretty quickly that that was not going to be working. Yeah, so we're getting to the 1600s. You said, what year, 15, what for the, for the first 1594. Expedition? So it was three back-to-back -back years, 1594, 95, and 96. They did three expeditions, and the third yeah. one is where they got stranded for the winter. 
So why go up there to begin with? What's the reason for them to explore that area? Well, same reason that moves most things today, money. Uh, They were wanting to (laughs) trade with China. And so they had financial backers in this new Dutch Republic, just when the Netherlands, as we know it today, was being born. And uh, they wanted to avoid Spain. They were at war with Spain for 80 years. This is right in the middle of that. And Spain had all the southern routes locked up. So they thought, well, let's get to China by going north, and we can steal all that, you know, money, money trade. And when they find themselves up there, I'm sure there was a lot of unexpected things they started to document. Because you look at some of the diaries and different materials that were taken during that time, I'm guessing you found a lot of surprises to them. Yeah, well, this was the farthest north that any European had been uh, above Europe or Asia. So. There had been, you know, some things that were known about the Arctic already. It's not like no one had been to the Arctic. Part of the European continent is on the Arctic. But up here, once you get north of the continents and up into these islands and then up above anything anybody had ever documented, they were literally off the map. So they saw uh, what was new for them, walruses. They saw polar bears. They saw uh, an effect, this sort of uh, mirage that can happen in which the sun comes up two weeks early after polar night, and it had never been recorded before. And they came back, and and the main guy who documented the third voyage put it in his journal, and it actually caused people to disbelieve the entire journal for centuries in some cases because (laughs) people were like, that's not possible. And it was really only into the 20th century, and uh, Nansen, who was another really legendary explorer in 1894, saw the same effect and wrote about it, and people started to realize maybe this is a real thing. And it's it's just a physics effect of an inversion layer and different temperatures, and it has all these very specific things, but they saw exactly what they saw. So it's kind of amazing. They were these, like, proto-scientists scientists, you know, going out into the world because they were looking at this new place that nobody had written about before. Yeah. And I think in modern times, going back to the Apollo mission and sending astronauts to the moon for the first time and what a big deal it was to have these astronauts come back safely to talk to them and watch their experiences unfold, which is pretty remarkable. So when they came back after the first mission up into the Arctic and they're starting to read and share their notes and some people are questioning all of this, were they treated, you know, like celebrities or what, what was the reaction to the, the people after that? Well, the the first and second voyages didn't get a real sort of popular treatment because they were really sailing um, as kind of emissaries of this new Dutch Republic. So it wasn't something that was written about uh, and publicized in a really broad fashion. It wasn't a secret, but it also wasn't advertised. And so after the first mission, they had this first group, the little mini fleet that went out, had split it into two and tried to sail both above and below these islands called Nova Zembla, above the Siberian coastline. And they both thought, so the the scouting party that went north and the scouting party that went south, both thought that they had found a route to China. So they came back and said, we're good to go. So they just outfitted, the answer was not fame at that point, but they outfitted a second fleet. And this was going to be seven big ships filled with cargo. And the idea was they were going to keep going and go all the way to China. And that second voyage was such a disaster. I mean, mutiny, guys getting eaten by polar bears, ship colliding. uh, I mean, just people drowning. Everything that can go wrong went wrong. And so when they came back, they were really not celebrated at all. They were, if anything, they were a little infamous. And there was almost not a third voyage because of that. But it's that third voyage that they got stranded on. And that's kind of where the legend is made. Because not, not only did they go so far north into this place that was entirely off the map, 
but they were there for almost a year. They overwintered there, which that is the story that they came back that was translated into several languages within a couple years after their return. And Shakespeare mentions it in Twelfth Night. He refers to these guys. Um, it just becomes the whole idea. These islands they were stranded on, Nova Zembla, sometimes referred to just as Zembla in English, um, becomes this legendary, desolate, farthest northern place that you can go. And, and so it's really that third voyage and staying there for the winter that kind of sets the whole template for what is the, you know, the harrowing polar bear, uh, polar explorer story, you know, all that suffering, rather than just somebody exploring new lands, but really having to, like, suffer. <laughs> they, they kind of set the template for that. All right, so name dropped by Shakespeare is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they don't even, he doesn't even have to use their names. He's just, he just has one character that has so insulted this woman. Uh, the guy is told by another character that basically you so, you've screwed up so badly. You have sailed so far north in, out of my lady's favor, and you will sit there and hang like an icicle on a Dutchman's beard. And <laughs> it, they were so famous, he didn't even have to use their names to name drop. Everybody knew what this story was. So I just think that's awesome. And, and, and they weren't English, right? They're Dutch. So this crossed international European borders at the time. It just became, you know, sort of the first polar legend. What a line. Wow, that is a skull dropper because when you think of Shakespeare holding it. Um, you know, what's interesting about all of this, I'm trying to look at the map right now. So the Nova Zembla, what is that close to? What is that by? <laughs> it's not by anything. It's um, if you were to go, uh, there's the Ural Mountains that kind of divide Europe from Asia. They, they are kind of a, an up and down vertical line, north-south mostly going dividing Europe from Asia. If you go just past that and you head due north for about 300 miles, again, over Siberia, then you're going to be on Nova Zembla. So it looks kind of like a long, thin hot dog, hundreds of miles long, you know, way up in the Arctic. It's what's often called the high Arctic. Interesting. So the book is out now and people can find it and enjoy it for themselves called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World and journalist Andrea Pitzer joining us. When you started to look at this, did you ever question yourself how in the world did they pull any of this off it's just even based on today's modern technology this would be a difficult thing for most people to do well i mean it took 300 years for them to really get back uh when they sent out some expeditions to the try to find the ruins of the cabin so i mean that tells you even as technology improved over that time how difficult it was still to get there. I'm sure some whalers came across the cabin at some point, but in terms of setting it as your goal to get to <laughs> from Amsterdam, it was still just almost impossible. And, and yeah, I mean, I do think about all the time how difficult it would be even today. I, I went there. I went on three expeditions to try to retrace some of their steps, and I actually went to where their cabin was. I got to tell you, there's not nearly as much ice there now. I mean, we saw very little ice in the region uh, and none at all where the cabin is situated. Uh, you can still see the ruins of it today. And so it, it's really the signs of climate change were super clear being there. And at the same time, I could stand out on that spit of land and from their descriptions see exactly how high the ice came and how high, where everything was and realize, I mean, it was just so desolate. So reading it for the first time, I felt like it was one of the most amazing survival stories ever, but I had never seen all the sources gathered together and anybody telling the story as a whole book in English. So I, I thought that people would enjoy sort of the, the entire story. Oh, that's cool. And for you to go there and to walk in the same areas where they were, I'm guessing... 
is is there a lot of tourism there today, or is this kind of a rare thing for someone to go back and visit this location? Uh, it's a little bit between the two. I would say it's a rare thing. Uh, there were a couple summers where I think that they had, you could sort of sign up and go, it's pretty expensive, and they would take some people up there, but the uh, that has fallen off in the last, I don't know, eight or nine years. And so it was never really a tourist thing. It was a little bit accessible at one point. It's become much more inaccessible. The Russians are not real friendly with military areas and security. <laughs> so it took a lot of permissions, and I had to go through a Russian company to, to make this work. But it's not like I wouldn't want to pretend I'm the only person that's ever walked that earth. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty difficult to get there. I would say it is not simple, and you need to have a pretty strong uh, stomach for seasickness if you're going to go there. Oh, boy. Well, I imagine, too, that when you're walking in the same areas and there's not a lot of tourists there, just, uh, you know, people going up there for the sake of doing it. Were you looking for artifacts personally? Were you trying to keep an eye out to see if there was anything dropped around that you might be able to discover? Well, they've been pulling, I mean, they've had, you know, major uh, archaeological, like, digs and stuff that was authorized to pull out remaining relics. So I'm sure there are still some things there, and I saw some things that looked suspiciously like bits of, of, of potential relics, but they've pulled... There are hundreds of relics and museums. I went to see some in on Svalbard, halfway between Norway and the North Pole. Um, in Reich's Museum, I got to handle the, arc, the relics that had come out of there, like beer taps and their shoes and books. And then um, Russia also has some. I saw a couple while I was in St. Petersburg. So most of the artifacts have been pulled out to sort of marine and Arctic museums around the world. But there's still the base uh, main logs from the base of their cabin are still there. And I had the archaeological map with me so that I could sort of walk the site and know how things were laid out and where things were. Um, and so I'm sure some of the people that came up a decade or two ago, you know, might have felt free to swipe some things. One hopes people wouldn't, but I'm sure yeah. it's super, super tempting. You know what I don't understand either? And maybe it's just because I think about books having a hard time surviving in regular conditions, but then you throw it that, you know, it makes an Arctic ex expedition and then it's 400 years later, it's frozen, it, it's wet conditions, they're on a boat and somehow some of these documents survive. That's amazing to me too. Well, some of the stuff that, that was paper that survived the best, they had rolled up and put in a powder horn. So it was like a little bit sealed, but uh, even the stuff that wasn't, it was in the cabin, and the cabin stayed mostly intact for most of that time. And in the Arctic before our lifetime, that stuff wasn't thawing. You know, it was like frozen, and it would stay frozen, and there wasn't this freeze and thaw that, that you see there very obviously now. So the Arctic can actually be a really good place to have things preserved. Now, I wouldn't want to stand, like, I wouldn't want to leave something fragile out on a windy ledge there. But if it's tucked away inside something, uh, the Arctic can be a pretty amazing place to preserve things. You think of these mammoths that they dig up, and you think of, you know, the, the, the different, uh, there was a dog they found not long ago. Um, I think that it really uh, acts in its natural state as a preservative, but we're seeing that less and less now with climate change. Yeah, all of these things are opposite of what I thought you would say. <laughs> and that's amazing to me. There's so much to explore, and I think that's why documenting this and sharing it with the world is an important thing to do. And I'm glad you did it. And do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to continue to talk to you about your book. Oh, that would be great. It's called Icebound. You can find it out now in journalist Andrea Pitzer joining us. Icebound, shipwrecked at the edge of the world. And we're going to continue next on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael's Flooring Outlet.com on KMOX. 
Oh, no. Is this right? Okay, welcome back to Overnight America. And joining us is the author, a journalist of a new book that you can find now called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. And Andrea Pitzer, thank you again for coming on tonight to Overnight America. Happy to be here. So when you look at all of the different people that were part of this voyage, how many of them went there and how many of them came back? Well, I don't want to get too much into specifics because I don't want to ruin the story. But I will say that uh, on the not boat, all of them. <laughs> well, not all of them, and I will say that uh, seventeen of them arrived at Nova Zembla, and uh, only twelve of them made it back to Amsterdam. And so, wow. who lives and who dies, I won't uh, extrapolate from here. If people want to look it up. Of course, it's a four hundred year old story. It's reasonable to do spoilers <laughs> on four hundred year old stories, but I don't want to because I actually wrote the book like a novel so that you don't know what's going to happen. You know, so if people want to preserve it, if they want to know the answer, they can go look it up. And if they want to preserve it, then I'm not going to ruin it for them. But not everybody yeah. makes it home. And I will say the first guy that dies is the carpenter, and that's when they need to build the cabin. So they started oh, out like, no. on a bad footing. Yeah, that's not who you really, you know, you, if you could pick somebody, you'd pick somebody else. And all of the different preparations that went into something like this, uh, it's amazing because all of that could be thrown out the window in a moment's time when the most important person of that voyage finds themselves first out. Uh, and I saw this one quote, the patron saint of devoted error. So as they were going through this, it sounds like the margin of error for the things they were doing were pretty slim. They had to make sure they get a lot of things right in order to survive a trip like this. When uh, just were there like a bunch of errors that just simultaneously happened and worked against their favor or were they more lucky than they were having problems? Well, it's a combination. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. They knew how to sail a ship. But and they could tell latitude really, really precisely, but you couldn't really tell longitude from a moving ship with any decency for a long time after this. And so they really didn't know east versus west by a long shot where they were, but they knew how close they were to the equator, which they could do a lot with. Um, so they were they were always having to get lucky, you know, as they were heading for places. And they also didn't really dress for the weather. They didn't really plan Arctic clothing the way that we would today. And they met with some indigenous people along the way, some Sami people, and then later some Nenets reindeer herders over at the southern end of Nova Zembla. And they didn't seem to take a cue from how those guys were dressed. And uh, you think that they could have clued in from that. They did make fox fur hats, but there's no indication that they made polar bear fur clothes, and that would have been a lot warmer than what they were wearing. So it's interesting that um, I would say it was some errors by not adapting to the things that they saw around them, but they turned out to, to sort of just persevere. And when things didn't work, they would try something else. They built some fox traps that didn't work. They made some new ones. But they also got lucky. They almost poisoned themselves to death eating polar bear liver at one point, which it turns out has toxic levels of vitamin A. And their skin peeled off from head to toe on, a, on several of them. Yeah, really. So they, they, they were sometimes their own biggest threat to themselves. But at the same time, you know, when they're their ship is frozen in and it stays frozen in. So they can't go home in their ship and they have to try to sail for home in their small boats, which is just amazing. And time and time again, they get to an iceberg and they're like, this is going to be the last iceberg that we have to get over. We can't get around it. So we're going to drag, we're going to climb up it. We're going to drag our boats up at all our provisions up it. We're going to haul it across the top of the iceberg. We're going to get down on the other side and there's going to be open sea. 
and time and time again, they get over the other side and there's another iceberg. And so oh. even if, even if I want to give them a hard time for making some really bad choices, I have to say they were incredibly tough. And when they hit that next iceberg, they just were like, okay, we got to do it again. And the toughness of just enduring that, I think, uh, you know, no matter how you feel about the Arctic getting opened up by Europeans, no matter how you feel about the dumb things they did, um, I found a lot to admire in, in these guys just working with each other and taking care of each other to try to survive. Wow. Climbing iceberg. This story has everything. So it's called Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. And if people wanted to find your work, where can they go? They can go anywhere. I mean, it's IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Your local bookstore is always a great bet. I'm told it's in BJ's. So there's lots of choices. Would it be important for you to put this book in your freezer before you read it to get into the mood of reading the story? Oh, no, you'll get into it. Because when I was writing it, I put myself in this little tiny room. You don't need the icebox. I put myself in this little tiny room to write it, and I swear it was summer when I was working on it the most. Every time I came out, I was shocked that it wasn't snowing outside. <laughs> so I think the book will do the job. In fact, I would recommend a warm blanket and, you know, a nice drink to, to settle in with, maybe something warm. And no climbing icebergs. So you might be tempted, depending on where you are listening to this interview, if there's a lot of snow in the future, you may look at when the plow goes by and puts a big pile of it in your front yard. You'll have to resist the urge to go out there and try to climb it to see what's on the other side. There Just you to go. Get to the, uh, the spirit of reading Icebound, uh, shipwrecked at the edge of the world. And one other time, I, I just want to make sure everyone knows, of course, the local books people can find this online if they search for Icebound, which is out today, or journalist Andrea Pitzer. In the way that you write it, who do you think this book would most appeal to? Um, I am told that it is uh, like outdoor jocks, that it's a dad book, that if you have a tomboy daughter, I've had so many different people tell me like, you know, what it's an amazing book for. I would say if you have a dad who loves history or if you love like survival and adventure stories. I love it. All of which are great categories for people that are listening right now. Uh, journalist Andrea Pitzer, Icebound, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World is the name of the book. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for coming on to Overnight America. It was great to be here. Thanks so much. And she joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. How exciting is that to be able to learn a little bit about history, things that happened 400 years ago? That's when you know you've made it. You're not cool until William Shakespeare drops one of your references into his play and it's an awesome burn just drops the mic after something like that or the skull or the pantaloons i just want to imagine what it, how hard it would be to have to haul your boat over an iceberg and then find yourself over that iceberg only to realize there's other icebergs to haul a boat over does not sound like fun getting frostbite just thinking about it when we come back our friend tom sullivan joining us he pays a lot of attention to politics in the county and there was some pretty big things going on today he'll join us right after the local news on overnight america kmox tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports that clock at four donchich the Step Back 3, you bet! Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 